Hi everyone, it's Bill Black, the Exit Coach from the Exit Coach Radio Show. You know, one of the biggest questions I get on the show is what exactly goes into a business exit plan and when should I start creating mine? Well, I always tell people that the best time to start was five years ago, but the next best time is now because you never know when you might need it. So we put together a free report that describes what an exit plan is and what you should know. You can get it free by texting EXIT PLAN with no spaces to 44222. That's EXIT PLAN to 44222. Again, text EXIT PLAN to 44222. Welcome to the Exit Coach Radio Show, the show for baby boomer business owners who are looking for cutting-edge information as they plan their 3- to 10-year business succession and exit. Every week, we interview top professional advisors for their best tips, strategies, and precautions so you can be well-planned. And now, here's your host, the Exit Coach, Bill Black. Well, thank you so much for listening. It's always a pleasure to have you with me. And, uh, you know, we have a wide variety of guests here at Exit Coach Radio. Uh, always have. We've done over 1,500 interviews. My next guest is Ryan Kuhn. And uh, Ryan is an interesting gentleman here. I'll give you a little intro. He started out an investment as an investment banking associate at BMO Capital Markets. Then he left this high-paying job to travel, taught himself to code, and launched a tech startup called Avail, an all-in-one software solution designed for do-it-yourself landlords that's now used by more than 600,000 landlords and tenants across the U.S. He's passionate about hustling and building wealth while remaining strong-willed and purposeful and wants to help others to do the same. So we're going to talk about things like what it takes to leave a high-paying job and build a business from nothing. Looking forward to hearing what you have to say, Ryan. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Bill. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Interesting background. Takes a lot of guts to do what you did, um, and a lot of people wish they had those guts. So I think that's what we're going to talk about today. So what does it take? What does it take? What are the the upsides and the and the downsides? Tell us a little bit more about uh, yourself and about especially about Avail. That sounds fascinating too. Yeah. Well, really, as you described. I started my career working for a large global investment bank here in Chicago. I was in the banking industry for about four years during the financial crisis and ultimately realized that when you're working for an organization with tens of thousands of employees, the actual impact that you as an individual contributor can make is actually pretty small. And part of Uh, Growing up, um, I was always around small businesses where, you know, the harder you work, the more rewarded you became. And so ultimately decided to kind of take take things into my own hands, Um, ended up leaving banking to pursue building a company. And ultimately, uh, we've built Avail over the last five, five and a half years. And today we've got this 600,000 or more landlords and tenants. We've got a 33-person team all here in Chicago. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, certainly lots of ups and downs along the way, but um, that's to be expected. Well, you, you took a chance, but you, you, you know, it also says in your bio, you taught yourself how to code. So, I mean, you didn't just come up with an idea and, and let somebody else figure it out. You taught yourself how to build, how to do the building blocks of something like this, which is a whole new and difficult skill. Yeah, and, and that decision to le- actually learn how to code in order to launch the company was a very deliberate, well-thought-out decision that my co-founder and I made. And 
ultimately, Lawrence and I, when we started Avail, we came to a decision and we said, look, we can either invest somewhere $50,000, $100,000 into hiring someone to build us this product that we want, or we could actually, in, in a, the way that we convinced ourselves to do this was to actually invest in ourselves and to use that fifty dollars to $100,000 that we combined put into the company and ultimately use that as, a, in some ways, a salary to pay ourselves while we were going through that process of learning to code. So that was our thinking. We, we ultimately decided to invest in ourselves because if this company, for whatever reason, didn't work out, we would at least have those tangible skills that we could take and go on to the next endeavor. That makes a lot of sense because, of course, uh, software as a service is here to stay. Uh, tell us what you know. What does somebody need to know about building a software as a service company? I mean, you've you've talked about coding, but what else do you need to know to even start thinking about building something? Yeah, well, I think one of the topics that doesn't get nearly enough airtime um, is really the the idea of product market fit and finding an audience, building an audience of people who are a good fit for your product. I think so many entrepreneurs and startup founders go into launching a product that is important for them, but ultimately it's not a, a good fit for enough people to really build it into a sustainable business. So I think that's something that, that I love talking about. I think the, the whole notion of build it and they will come is, is definitely a myth. It doesn't happen. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs and founders should put in a lot of thought and do a lot of research ahead of time to make sure that the market that they're targeting is actually building a big enough, sorry, to, to build a sustainable business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good good thinking. Um, and you found a niche that it seems, you know, this is the thing. It seems like somebody would have thought about the niche that you have. What were the barriers to entry when you started thinking, hey, maybe we can build this software that basically will help do-it-yourself landlords? Yeah, when we started the company, and, and even today, there's in the United States, there's roughly 47, 48 million residential rental properties. And about half of those rental units are institutionally owned, they're professionally managed, they're your big apartment buildings, your sprawling apartment complexes. The other half of the rental units in the country are actually owned by men and women like us who are busy professionals, they're doctors, bankers, attorneys, consultants, and they own properties either as a way to build passive income or to save money for retirement. And it's actually this second part of the market, these do-it-yourself DIY landlords that we set out, we launched Avail to really help these individuals. And I think over the last five years, there's really been a lot of changes going on that have actually made it possible for a company like Avail to exist and thrive. And a lot of that has to do with the, um, the increasing adoption of technology. So I know over the last five years, there's been a huge uptick in people using technology. There's also going on a generational shift here in the country about who's owning all of these rental units and as these rental properties are being passed down from, you know, parents to children, 
um, the children are much more comfortable and accustomed to using technology. And so it's really those couple of shifts that, that make it possible for Avail to be what it is today. And I'm looking at your website right now, which is avail.co. Um, and, you know, the main things, if you're listeners and you're thinking about, well, what all does it do? The main things, you think about how much time you spent finding tenants and, and vetting those tenants, viewing their credit history, signing leases, collect rent. Those are the major tools that are on here, right? This is the, those are the main things that you figured. These are things we can do with technology easily uh, and, and save people a lot of time. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Bill. As a do-it-yourself part-time landlord myself, I know that there are those five main things that landlords need to do from finding tenants, screening them, signing leases, collecting rent, and managing maintenance. And whether you're managing a single-family home in Anchorage or a three-unit brownstone walk-up in Brooklyn, it's really those five main things that every landlord has to do and we're giving landlords technology for free that really helps them do those things more efficiently, save time, save money. Now, this is not an avail.co commercial, right? This is the, the <laughs> intent of this. But I wanted to bring that up because what you did was very critical. You, you pictured your avatar, the, your, your client you're trying to serve, and thought about what are the most uh, what are the most important things for them that we can do and, and save them time and money and really make this, this is not something that somebody would just uh, get on, do one transaction. They become a subscriber, they become a member, and that's what you want when you're building a SaaS type of a, a company, I would think. Let's talk about persistence. You, you have a, especially when you have venture capitalists uh, uh, back in your startup, uh, why, is, why do you say persistence is key in running a venture capitalist-backed startup? Well, I think persistence is important really no matter what type of business you're running. But I think especially with technology, there's so many ups and downs that come along. And as founders, it's really important that we're persistent, that we don't give up. And then as it relates to a venture capital-backed business, the institutional investors, the VCs that have invested alongside us with Avail, they're expecting us as founders, my co-founder Lawrence and me, to really be along for the, with the company for a long time. Um, they're, as much as they're investing in the business, they're also investing in the people and the team, and they're really making a bet on us. And so it's important that we don't give up, that we remain persistent, that we really try and build the business as big and as successful as it can be over the long run. And, and how much do you, uh, how much emphasis do you put on communicating with them uh, in good times, and do you, do you communicate them when you're having challenges too? Do you, uh, you know, they want to see success story, but do you let them know, hey, we're we've got some challenges, but we're working on them? How important is that communication? It's so important to have that open line of of communication, that dialogue with with our investors. I think as a founder, one of the things I didn't appreciate enough is actually how helpful outside investors can be, and they want to be. And so you're right, as much as they love hearing about the, the good times, I frequently spend more time with our investors talking about different challenges or different obstacles that we're encountering because as investors with deep pockets, with a lot of capital to invest, 
these individuals also have big networks, they know a lot of people, and they can be tremendously helpful. Yeah, that's really, really a good lesson. Now, I think a lot of people are probably wondering now, it's like, well, besides going on Shark Tank, how do I get in front of, uh, how do I find those uh, investors, and what stage do I have to be before they get interested? Tell us a little bit about your journey with uh, coming, you know, business plan and what you had to come up with and uh, what what path you took and to finally find uh, somebody that would invest in you. Yeah, I think for us and our journey a little bit, we've raised several rounds of venture capital, but it ultimately did first start with a friends and family round of funding where we essentially approached some of our personal friends and our families and asked them to invest in the business that we were building. And then ultimately over time, as we started to get some traction, have revenue, we were beginning to build out the team. And what we recognized is that with capital, we could go a lot faster. And that's when we made the decision to start focusing on building those relationships with venture capitalists in order to build relationships, in order to show them over time how the business was growing. And then ultimately when we decided hey, we've got this big opportunity that we know we can go tackle with capital. That was the time when we started approaching some investors and saying, look, this is the opportunity. This is why you should be excited about it. And ultimately, they joined us and partnered with us and invested in the company. A lot of business plans start on the back of a cocktail napkin, <laughs> maybe a drawing or something <laughs> like that. Uh, what did you learn along the way as far as what, uh, like, for instance, friends and family, uh, what did you maybe initially try to present to them? And then did was there any things that you learned that you had to change the way you present things, um, show them more numbers? Uh, you have any, any stories or examples about about that journey? Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned the cocktail napkin because that, as as much as I could just be making this up, our our story of Avail actually truly did start on a cocktail napkin. Um, <laughs> my my co-founder Lawrence and I, um, we were on a on a going out to Las Vegas for a bachelor party, and sitting there on the plane, we just started talking about how we were both managing our properties. But um, I think in terms of business planning. Um, it's important, and, and one of the things that I've learned along, along the way that may be helpful for the audience is that you have to, while, while planning is important, you've also got to remain really nimble. And I say that because early on, Lawrence and I spent a lot of time and effort building out a 30, 40, 50 page Word doc business plan. And we ultimately started talking with people, talking with potential customers, and we found that that initial idea wasn't quite positioned exactly the right way. And so we had to go back to the drawing board, revise everything. So my one advice or one tip of advice would be to remain nimble. And before you even start writing things on paper, go out and talk with 50, 75, 100 prospective customers before you even start putting pen to paper. And do you have any specific top three questions you might ask those uh, those people? Yeah, I think for, for me, those top three questions would be, number one, 
what, like, how big of pain is this? Or, you know, when, when you approach these individuals and you have that conversation, you obviously have to give them a bit of a flavor of what your idea is or what the product is that you're building. But after that, you then say, would this product save you time, save you money? How much better would your life be with this product? So that's number one. Number two, and a lot of people are afraid to ask this, but the, the second question that I ask people when I'm talking with them is, what would you pay for this product? Because in order, mm-hmm. I mean, while your product may be great, if it's not something people would pay for, there's really not a business there. And then right. number three, the third, the third question I like to ask people is, if this product existed, would you tell your friends and family about it? So I think those are, those are the three important questions to ask any prospective customer when you're doing those initial customer discovery interviews. So, Ryan, you've, uh, you took a big chance. You started a, a business. You learned a lot along the way. I just have one question for you. When's the book coming out? <laughs> well, <laughs> Very it's, interesting. It's a very interesting story. I think a lot of people would, would love to read it. Yeah, we, we've got, I mean, we've come a long way since those early days of learning to code, but we still treat every day like it's day one. We've got a lot of growth ahead of us. Um, and at some point may write a book on it and tell, the sh- tell it, but um, I just appreciate you having me on to talk about it and share the, the story here today. Tell me, uh, how old were you when you started Avail, when you, when you actually started it? Yeah, so I was uh, either 27 or 28 years old when I was lucky to be able to leave a full-time job um, in order to learn to code. Um, That learning to code process took about two and a half to three years. And so Mm -hmm. actually getting to the point of launching the business, um, I was probably 30, 31 years old. Congratulations. That's really terrific. You've made a lot of progress you should be very proud of yourself for uh, taking the initiative and seeing seeing through to the other side of that. I think it's a terrific story, and I think it's one that our listeners, uh, a lot of our listeners are thinking about, you know, I know what I've done for the last many years. I'm not sure what I'll do in the next several years. And, I, I, and a lot of them have, um, of course, uh, youngsters that are coming along and thinking the same thing. It's like, uh, is it worth it to take a chance? And I think you've given us a good blueprint for um, how to take a chance and uh, and what to do about it and uh, and and make your way through it. So congratulations to that. And, and I hope you will come back and share uh, how we can buy your book when it is done because I think you're I, I think that's in your future. Really nice to talk with you. Tom. All right. Yeah. Thanks thank very you much. very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Exit Coach Radio.